hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in London. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, uh, fittingly enough, the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economy of Britain. This is in continuation of our series on the economies of various countries around the world. We've been dedicating the month of August to that. But first, we wanted to do another country, and the data point there is six, which is the annualized growth rate, 6%, that Japan achieved in the second quarter of this year, according to data released this week by the Japanese government. The Japanese economy seems to be doing pretty well. Well, certainly on the headline, certainly on exports, as you both have just pointed out. grew much faster than expected during the April to June period. The 6% annualized growth in the economy meant a... That came as a shock to some people who pay attention to these things, not only at the magnitude of the growth, 6% would be a success for many countries in the West, but also the place where it happened ever since the popping of its real estate bubble in the 1990s, Japan has become almost synonymous with the idea of economic stagnation. The years since the 1990s have often been referred to as the country's lost decades. And so, Adam, first off, just to address these growth rates directly, what accounts for this sudden surge in Japan's growth rate? Has it cracked some code for growth after several lost decades? Or is this just a kind of short-term blip in keeping with what came before. Yeah, it's really a striking number. It's pretty difficult, I think, to read the global conjuncture right now altogether. And so to place the the Japanese growth numbers within that, it's a little tricky. They're eye-catching, they're real. I mean, they're driven largely by three factors, investment, exports, and strong domestic tourism. So people are traveling again. There's an element, in other words, here still of, I think, COVID rebound going on. The worry um, is that the domestic consumption numbers are quite poor, quite weak, in fact. So we're seeing a kind of relatively consistent picture of an industrial investment, export-led recovery with some domestic tourism, but not a broad-based consumption recovery yet. The thing where Japan really, the dimension where Japan really does seem to have turned the corner is that it seems to have really broken out of any kind of deflationary spiral. These are real growth numbers, so inflation is taken care of. But deflation, falling prices, was really the bugbearer of the Japanese economy for decades. And inflation now is you know, solidly and squarely around 3%. And that's kind of a confidence game. It's an expectations game. So there's no imminent reason to expect that, I think, to collapse again into negative territory. So too, cool, too early to call this for sure. But it's out of sync with what's happening in the West, which is good news for Japan, because the West is sort of slowing Europe in particular. But too early to say, I think, diagnosed that there's been some sudden, you know, we shouldn't expect a whole run now of 6% numbers. These are annualized as well. So what they've done is the American style, they've taken a quarterly number and projected it out over a 12-month period. So it exaggerates the swing. But nevertheless, yes, the Japanese economy appears to be turning up. Yeah, I guess whatever the specific cause of the second quarter growth, what's clear is that in recent years, Japan seems to have been pushing the outer edges of what fiscal and monetary policy can do to stimulate a stagnating economy. You know, we've seen extremely low interest rates over uh, over long periods of time. 
We've seen a lot of government spending, high debt ratios. And I was curious, what exactly is the history of how Japan became this big economic policy laboratory, you know, in a sense? I mean, where did all this kind of policy creativity come from? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There's three dimensions to economic policy, you could say. There's the sort of industrial structural policy side, there's the fiscal policy side, monetary policy side, and it's kind of an inconsistent mix. If we, if we focus on macro, so fiscal and monetary policy, the area of experimentation in Japan has been pretty consistently in the monetary policy domain. And this started really in reaction to the deflationary shock of the real estate collapse of the late 80s and early 1990s. And so it was in Japan that QE, quantitative easing, was invented in the early 2000s as a deliberate central bank policy to push money into the credit system. It was in Japan that negative interest rates were experimented with under Kurodasan, the, the legendary Bank of Japan governor. Also under Kurodasan, there was the adoption of the yield curve control, so deliberate targeting of bond market interest rates and huge purchasing of assets. So the Bank of Japan has experimented really to an extraordinary extent. The, the question, in a sense, is whether it's had to do that in part because fiscal policy was so inconsistent. I mean, clearly, they haven't pursued a debt break strategy of the German variety. They haven't consistently clamped down on fiscal deficits. But instead, they've kind of had a slightly schizophrenic cognitive dissonance fiscal policy where there's a, there's a presumption of fiscal conservatism that's not carried through on. This causes panics. At key moments, fiscal policy has pivoted in the wrong directions towards tightening, which has undermined the monetary policy stimulus and then caused the Bank of Japan to have to do even more. So there's a sort of deliberate open-ended experimentation on the part of the Bank of Japan and a rather inconsistent pattern on fiscal policy that have sort of sat very uneasily with each other over time. And holding both taps open, which is what finally kind of happened under COVID, has been the rare exception. So I'm curious whether Japan has the economic basis or is moving towards having an economic basis for a confrontation with China. Obviously, that is the big policy subject in foreign policy circles. I imagine also in Japan, is decoupling or de-risking realistic for a country that is so geographically close to China? And will it need to spend more on defense, for example? And is that possible in the absence of, you know, some continuation of this rapid growth that we're seeing right now? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I mean, Japan is much closer to China. It's a huge, in proportional terms, much bigger foreign direct investor in China. Japan ran a lot of the key supply chains that were innovated from the 1990s onwards out of China. Taiwan is, is you know, is 100 kilometers from Japan. So they're very close. And so for, you know, there were Japanese studies of what total decoupling would do, and it would, you know, inflict a 10... 10 plus percentage point hit to Japanese GDP, which is huge if we ever went down that route. But it's really important to think of Japan not as a passive player. It's not, you know, it's not a Germany. I think that's kind of maybe the important point to make. It's structurally similar to Germany, you might say, a beneficiary of American hegemony, a big exporter, you know, all of that, heavily entangled with what has now emerged as a major geopolitical antagonist. Russia in the German case, China, you could say, but China above all in Japan's case. 
But in Japan, it has to be said that the kind of tradition of geopolitical fear about China is much more alive than it ever was in Germany. And that has something to do with the undigested legacy of conservative politics in Japan. We shouldn't make any bones about this. The people that govern Japan for almost all the time are Cold War hawks, who in the case of Abe had a fairly unapologetic relationship to Japan's imperial history and are allies of the United States in the post-war period in an aggressive Cold War politics. And so Japan is the first state actually to have adopted a national economic security strategy uh, many years ago now, uh, has been thinking about this issue for longer, really, than probably anyone else in, say, the G7. And at the recent G7 conference, Japan was actually one of the countries pushing, unlike Germany, for a more hawkish stance on China because it's much closer to them. And Japan has adopted, like Germany, a Zeitenwender, a turning of the times new defense strategy. And like Germany, it's committed to meeting the 2% target. Like Germany, it's also dragging its feet because like Germany, it took a peace dividend and and really has frozen defense spending at 1% of GDP for most of the, well, since the 1970s onwards, it allowed G, uh, defense spending to increase with Japan's GDP. So holding it at 1% was the target. But in the later stages of Abe's premier, premier premiership, the spending has begun to rise. And the question of whether Japan can afford it brings us back to kind of basic questions of macroeconomics. What does it mean to say you can afford a defense strategy? To the extent that you spend the money at home on your own stuff, which is true, say, for all of Japan's naval procurement, and Japan obviously is going to be a naval power, and for much of its land equipment like tanks, which the Japanese make themselves with their heavy engineering capacity, it's really just a question of resource allocation. I mean, do you want to, you know, do you want to make guns or butter? That's the choice. It's not a question of affording because you just print the money like the Japanese have done. If you decide to make it a matter of affording, it's it's a question then of, you know, budgetary arithmetic which you've decided to impose on yourself. And the Japanese electorate are allergic to paying more taxes. Their incomes have essentially been static for decades, so unsurprisingly they don't want to have taxes increase. And that's what creates the issue of funding, which is something that actually does worry the current government. Insofar as it's a matter of affording equipment that you don't make yourself, then notably it would be uh, Japan's Air Force, which is buying quite a lot of F-35s, then you do actually have to earn the dollars to buy those. But that's A, a down payment on your alliance with the United States. Japan is a favored member of the F-35 coalition, this global alliance built around this hyper expensive uh, warplane. And on the other hand, of course, Japan has a huge, huge foreign exchange reserve. So there's no real issue about, you know, will would Japan be able to provide F-35s? Yes. I mean, so there's no issue here. It's all about politics and whether Japanese society wants to allocate resources. So in a broader sense, I'm wondering whether Japan is well-placed right now in our new era of industrial policy, obviously around the world. We're seeing a, a turn away from globalization as we've previously understood it to, yeah, spending, investing more at home, producing sort of more cumbersome supply chains, perhaps, in order to have more security in our economies. I mean, Japan, with its high debt levels, again, to turn to this question of being able to afford something, can Japan afford more? spending at home to support industry in this new era? I mean, given its stagnation, has Japan been a particular beneficiary of falling prices and the, you know, falling costs that are associated with the, you know, era of, of globalization? The industrial policy question is is really fascinating because again, like Japan is 
curiously sort of out of phase with the rest of the world. I mean, Japan was the progenitor of industrial policy, notoriously so. Charles Johnson wrote this extraordinary book about the the MITI, um, the Ministry of Industrial uh, Industry and Technology in, in Japan, which which was legendary in the West for having, at least on the reading of certain Western analysts, driven Japan's amazing industrial rise in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But then Japan itself went through a kind of a move against that and in the 90s and 2000s pursued a much more hands-off neoliberal strategy which was centered on this idea of reform. In other words, there were structural things in the the Japanese labor market, in corporate ownership, in the operation of its stock market that needed fixing so that Japan could escape the impasse. And now the rest of the world has come around, both in the European and the American case, to a sort of policy on industry, which in many ways actually quite closely resembles the rather ad hoc, corporate-centered, industrial sector-centered approaches of Japan at an earlier stage. People talk about the West becoming like China, and I think it's much more reasonable. It's a forced comparison in any case, but it's much more reasonable to say it's becoming more like Japan. Japan itself then has to decide what to do next. Again, I don't think money is the issue here. What has Japan, as after all, demonstrated is the viability and survivability of a system of enormously inflated national public debt, which is absorbed into the financial system, both in the Bank of Japan and on private balance sheets. And everyone has proven that the balance, you know, the financial constraint doesn't really bind. It's Japan. So it would be kind of capricious to suddenly and say, well, we can't do industrial policies. We can't afford it. So what they're doing is rather interesting, though. They're doing three sort of because they then have an internal reflection on isn't this weird that we are now playing catch up with what used to be the our own strong suit what's going on so if you read japanese reporting on their industrial policy they say right the new era is mission led industrial policy in other words japan needs to decarbonize it wants to leverage a trillion dollars worth of investment how's it going to do that well it's going to use 130 trillion dollars in government de-risking to enable that private investment that's a fairly standard pattern but it's different from earlier areas of industrial policy because it's targeted at this concrete goal of decarbonization by the paris guidelines which is a huge ask for japan because it's heavily dependent on coal and gas, especially since its nuclear program went into crisis. The second thing you see is the Japanese continuing the structural reform agenda, an area which I think should get more attention in the West, which is essentially labor market and education focused. In other words, work on the labor market supply side of the industrial policy problem. And then the third element, which is a bit distinctive, is the Japanese are obsessed with this idea that they don't have enough venture capital. And so one of the new industrial policy, quote unquote, schemes the Japanese government is rolling out is a series, are a series of tax write-offs, incentives for big existing companies to invest in over the long term and in a patient way in startups. So you have kind of a three-pronged strategy, which is mission-orientated, targeted industrial policy aimed at decarbonization, labor market reform, and then Thirdly, this strategy of trying to continuing this ongoing critique of corporate Japan as ossified and old-fashioned and trying to shake it up by incentivizing existing players to invest in startups. But it's a very, again, you know, in all of these three areas, macro policy, defense policy, and industrial policy, you could say Japan is curiously out of phase or illuminatingly out of phase with what's going on in many parts in the West. So finally... I wanted to zoom out a bit and 
ask simply whether stagnation of the kind that Japan seemed to experience for quite a while, whether stagnation is really a crisis at all. I mean, Japan went through decades of this, and it still seems like a you know pretty pleasant place. So, I mean, is stagnation not necessarily a problem if you invest in a society that otherwise functions well? Yeah, this is this is this tempting idea about Japan as a kind of paradise of post-growth politics, you could say, or a post-growth society. And I mean, there's elements to this story I find quite attractive, but I'm also acutely aware of the fact that of the risk of sort of an orientalizing gaze on on you know this this Asian this Asian model that I don't know from the inside in any way whatsoever. But I mean, I kind of let's just rehearse some of the arguments here. There's no doubt that from a um, human development point of view, quality of life at a biopolitical level, like Japan is streets ahead of the vast majority of Western societies, notably the United States. I mean, the human development index is is in the absolute top league of the richest, richest countries. We're talking comparisons with places like Norway, right? Um, and this is a society of over 100 million people. So this is not some small European place that you can say, oh, well, you know, if you were that rich and there's so few of you, then that's all very well. But Japan isn't. Japan is a huge society. If you look at life expectancy, again, it's in the absolute top rung of the most affluent and most successful societies in the world. And now seven and a half years, repeat, seven and a half years longer at birth than for America. That's that's a whole different dimension. In other words, it's a super advanced society rather than the laggard that America has become in terms of life expectancy. Um, if you look at quality of life issues like equality, Japan's welfare state, its tax system does a very good job of squeezing what is a high genie pre-tax 0.5 to a medium European level genie 0.33 after tax and welfare. It has an exemplary healthcare system that works extremely well. And if you look at things like urban governance, Tokyo has become the toast of progressive urban planners who sh- who've been able to show how in the last 20 to 30 years, they've been able to keep the cost of living in, in you know, this major urban conurbation down. So on all of these you know, metrics, you'd say exactly what's the problem here. This is a very successful model of post-growth. When you dig deeper, though, into the social indicators, you begin to get signs that suggest a much more problematic and complex story about a society which, in many respects, is profoundly conservative with regard, for instance, to its ability to absorb ethnic cultural diversity compared to the enormous migrant flows into Europe, for instance. A society which offers many young people fewer opportunities than uh, we would expect in the West that continues to be highly segregated on gender lines. And so there is, as it were, a kind of darker story there of a dysfunctional conservatism. But it would seem to me like absolutely, well, just hubristic from the point of view of the West to, you know, label this one way or the other, to be honest. It looks like a very complicated example of many of familiar problems that we're seeing in many of the rich societies managed at an extremely extremely high level. And so, yeah, I, I don't want to kind of like fall into some simple generalization but it certainly demonstrates that if you can maintain you know, inequality at moderate levels and provide basic welfare and health infrastructure, you can achieve an extremely livable society which offers great opportunities for very large numbers of people without rapid economic growth. That's, that's clearly the case. I mean, the, it should at least remove the panic around uh, zero growth. Does it cause problems? Can it create intergenerational issues? Absolutely, it clearly can. But then we know other models do too. 
So then it's a question of how you address those side effects. It certainly demonstrates that you don't need growth per se to make a society, um, you know, extremely livable and offering a very high quality of life. Well, we do have to end the conversation here, but we will be back in a second to talk about another middle-sized country in a very different situation, Britain. So yeah, stick with us. Hi, and welcome back. So our next data point is 48. That is 48th place out of 50, which is where the United Kingdom would rank among the 50 U.S. states in terms of GDP per capita adjusted for purchasing power. That's been referred to in the U.K. apparently for years now as the Mississippi question. Where exactly does Britain stand in relation to the poorest U.S. state? This debate has been stirred up again recently by an article in the Financial Times. And uh, it's, yeah, stirred up anxiety that's already been been pretty stirred up by, by Brexit, obviously, for a couple of years. Yeah, the kind of British self-image as a economic power has taken some hits. And so we thought we would, yeah, take a closer look at the British economy. We've done this before, but uh, yeah, we thought we were due for another look. So Adam, to start with Brexit, I mean, what are the measurable ways in which the British economy has been damaged by Brexit? I mean, would its economy right now be in a substantially different place where it's still part of the European Union? <laughs> These questions, come, they, they really are a tax on my... Uh, on my uh, my ability to maintain balance and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm gonna every, so everything I say should be taken with with the proviso that you are speaking to somebody who can barely stand to be in the country um, till you know um, almost a decade on from the Brexit referendum. I, it's literally the case that I can barely stand to be here. But there is, in fairness, a serious argument about this question because it's quite difficult to decide. Uh, how you how you judge this? The the problem is counterfactual. Like, what would what would Britain have been like if it had stayed in the EU? What the EU would have been like with Britain in it? It's complicated by the fact that, of course, there's just been a couple of shocks to the European economy: COVID first, and then Putin's war, and so things have not been normal. And we're in the ironic position now that defenders of Brexit choose as their benchmark the perf actual performance of France and Germany. So why? Because the, France, the performance of France and Germany, and Germany notably, has been so bad recently that you know it allows you to roll off any particular allegations about the damage done by Brexit, you know, the ghastly queues, the incredible encumbrance of trade that we all know about, and just say, well, look, Germany's doing badly as well. So staying in would clearly not have been good for the UK. Right? It's a really weird inversion of the fronts. If you adopt a more, you know, you could say, well, complicated methodology, what you create is what's called a doppelganger. Because France and Germany are all very well because they're big European countries, so you could compare. But they're also very different structurally from the UK. So the doppelganger mo methodology actually creates a synthetic alternative reality in which there is an economy like the British one in terms of its structure inside the EU. And then you benchmark British actual performance against that. 
And what that shows is that since Brexit, the British economy, not relative to actually existing France and Germany, but relative to a synthetic UK-like economy within the EU, has grown half as fast as that synthetic doppelganger. Now, neither of them is growing fast. Like The actual growth rate would have been 0.5% of the doppelganger, and the UK's actual growth rate is closer to 0.25%. But if you add that up over the period since Brexit, it's cost According to these estimates, this is John Springford of the CER, about 5.5% of British GDP. And cumulating, because what we're really saying is the growth rate's half what a synthetic doppelganger of the UK inside the EU could have expected to achieve, given its structure. It should, in other words, have done a bit better than Germany. And right now it's managing basically to do as badly as Germany. And that's a disappointment and should be a disappointment. It's hitting manufacturing trade, industrial trade, trading goods of all types, and it's hitting investment. And that's what's really delivering the shock. We're talking about maybe a 10 to 11% fall in investment um, relative to the synthetic doppelganger. It's not an immediate crisis. It's not a collapse. But Britain is going through a period of slow growth unparalleled, basically, in its modern history. And Brexit, on these estimates, is contributing to that. It's not the origin of it. It would be unfair to say that. The break clearly goes back to 0809 with the financial crisis. But the Brexit effect is there. And it probably blocks paths to an acceleration of this growth path quite effectively, because Britain has become a very unattractive place for people to invest. Yeah, that kind of leads to my next question, because I was curious how well-placed Britain is to fare in our new era of industrial policy. We just talked about this with respect to Japan, but where, where does Britain uh, shape up there? Yeah, it's kind of, this is one of the real ironies of the whole Brexit story, because the promise of Brexit, both from the left and the right, was that whether for their respective right-wing or left-wing agendas, leaving EU was going to give Britain sovereignty. It was going to to give it, you know, take allow it to take back control. And those of us who opposed Brexit did so in part because we just thought this argument was fatuous from the point of view, actually a kind of deep analytical level. Because when you break your relationship to one international structure, you don't then suddenly emerge into a, you know, the the free uplands of, of total sovereignty. You just shift your position within a global power structure, which remains a global power structure, but you now play on your own rather than part of a big club. And that's all very well if the big clubs are still herbivorous and playing by the WTO rules and abiding by the rules. And then you can swashbuckle and freeboot your way through the world, as Boris Johnson promised, or pursue your left-wing national social democratic agenda, as maybe people around Corbyn fantasized about, in a world in which everyone else continues to play by the liberal rules. But of course, the opposite has happened with what essentially a cascading series of decisions by China, then by the United States, and then the EU moving also into industrial policy mode and Japan as well. And these are all much bigger players than the UK. And the idea that the UK, after leaving the EU, could somehow snag a trade deal with the US you know, this was Obama already lectured London on this. It wasn't happening. Europe, UK would go to the back of the queue, and trade policy is dead anyway in Congress, as we know. So the idea that there's going to be a trade deal is not fair. So to turn to the Mississippi question now, I guess I want to zoom out a bit and ask whether this is a kind of valid comparison in the first place. I mean, you know, this is a comparison in terms of, yeah, GDP per capita adjusting for prices. But yeah, what kind of understanding of prosperity is is this betraying? You're in Britain right now. I mean, is life in Britain 
comparable with life in Mississippi? I mean, how, how does one go about even thinking about it? Mean, I mean, the first thing to say to our non-UK listeners is that this is indicative of the rather bleak mood. I'm not telling anyone in the UK anything they don't already know. But really, this sense of you know Britain as broken Britain has become really quite massively pervasive. And, and some of it is atmospheric, and some of it reflects actual realities, which have been pretty shocking and terrible in various ways. Um, the comparison itself is question begging above all because its units of comparison are really just hopeless. Like, I mean, it's a purchasing power parity adjusted GDP per capita figure. So you shouldn't read too much into it, right? It's a highly artificial statistical construct, but it's our best guess as to measuring relative standards of living, right? It's That's the work it's doing. Where it's really seriously misleading is you're taking the UK as an average, you know, and that's a, a unit of 65 million plus, a big complicated division of labor inside the UK, and you're taking one small piece of the United States national economy and comparing the two with each other. But as um, the FT's excellent data analysts have revealed, if you actually break this down to make a more sensible regional to regional comparison, the results for the UK are even more damning. And they're even more damning because the UK is a highly unequal, a highly, highly unequal economy with a massive concentration of wealth and economic activity around London in the southeast corner of England. And that distorts this comparison really dramatically. So at a national average level, the UK probably, a best guess right now, is above Mississippi and somewhere between Alabama and West Virginia. Um, if you take London... It actually is a world-class city with huge affluence, and anyone who's visited recently will know this. It actually sits, in terms of GDP per capita at PPP levels, at the level of LA, at the level of Amsterdam, at the level of Frankfurt and Stuttgart in Germany. Not at the level of Munich, that's a whole other level of affluence, but in that, in that very high tier. But then if you look at the rest of the UK, it immediately falls as an average if you take UKX London below Mississippi. And the poorest regions of Britain, and notably the northeast of England. So for geographic reference, if you follow English soccer, the premiership or whatever, this is Newcastle, Sunderland, those clubs. If you know your history, it's like historic towns like Durham. Its GDP per capita is lower than any state in the United States by a very large margin. It's about 25 to 30% below Mississippi. It's poorer even than the poorest East German province of Germany today. So it's one of the poorest parts of the EU. Now, these are GDP per capita, PPP adjusted figures. So need to be taken with a pinch of salt. But insofar as they're meaningful at all, that's kind of what they're telling us. I mean, just to, I guess, push back a little bit here. I mean, does do these comparisons take into account just different, I don't know, I imagine different structures of political economy in these two countries, I, you know, the existence of different welfare states. I imagine Britain has uh, a, a, a more robust welfare state relatively than, than, than Mississippi does or, or, or U.S. states do, or, yeah, investment in other sort of public goods or infrastructure, just the structure of the labor market, et cetera. I mean, yeah, is, is that stuff taken into account here? Or should it be taken into account when making these comparisons? So, no, these are um, th these questions are, are, are clearly, you know, on the on on the top of one's mind when one compares European societies with the United States. Notoriously, obviously, the United States does not have a comprehensive healthcare system. The UK does, and that definitely makes a difference to the sense of precarity. I think, right? There's no doubt. I think that poverty 
and insecurity in the United States are peculiarly linked and peculiarly intensely linked. But if you look at outcomes in terms of life expectancy, the figures for the northeast of England, which your question has like driven me to just look up, are staggering. In County Durham, for men, the healthy life expectancy at birth is 59 years old. So we are talking on, for Kingston upon Hull, the city, the healthy life expectancy at birth is 56. 56. Now that isn't, uh, this is healthy life expectancy. So it's not, it's not crude life expectancy. It's adjusted for health outcomes. But we are talking about societies which exhibit many of the same symptoms of deaths of despair, for instance, which characteristic of poor, uh, impoverished parts of the United States as well. These are not happy places enjoying the benefits of European welfare states at low incomes and, you know, BBC public broadcasting or whatever. They are in many ways suffering profound deprivation, multiple deprivation, high rates of premature mortality, high rates of depression, stunting in children, the whole the whole gamut of disadvantage. Okay, wow. Yeah. Let's turn to politics though, I guess, for a second here. I mean, do the Tories who've been in power now for many years have any ideas at all left at this point to kind of improve the British economy? And and, and then how about labor? I mean, it looks increasingly like the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, will be the next prime minister when there's an election probably next year. You know, most recently, uh, the headlines show that he's brought Tony Blair, the former British prime minister, back into the fold of the party. So, you know, what kind of economic policies does that portend? I I think the central issue of British politics right now is on the one hand that we have a dying Tory administration um, now in God knows how many cycles since the coalition government of 2010, right? So we've had a succession of administrations which have essentially cannibalized their own policies. It's a sort of standing joke amongst commentators on British economic policy right now that it's difficult to keep up with a number of different ways in which things like industrial strategy, industrial policy, leveling up, growth strategies for particular sectors have been packaged and repackaged and endlessly repackaged. And the party itself, the Tory party, is torn, I think, increasingly between the kind of Boris Johnson Brexit loyalists, a strategy of sorts that was the sort of Theresa May vision post-Brexit of actually trying to build out a Tory party with a working class base. And then the Sunak, Thatcherite, no, Thatcherite wing, which heads in a rather different direction. And the party, I think, is caught essentially between those three groups and unable to resolve itself in a credible way. And even if they did come up with a policy, they stuck to it and it would be very hard for anyone to take it seriously. And the the problem is that Labour is so terrified of failing to win that their strategy essentially consists of eliminating the negatives, eliminating risks, and to a considerable extent, they end up getting sucked onto the territory of the Tory party. So we're now seeing you know, Labour pull back on, on migration, for instance, which is a, one of the drivers of the Brexit discourse. The Labour Party essentially is pursuing a policy of just trying to avoid the shameful, disgraceful, xenophobic, nationalist, racist discourse of the Tory party, but otherwise is pursuing in many respects the, the same key agenda items on labor rights recently and this is the talk of, of, of uk politics in the last week or so it's emerged that the labor party leadership at its recent conference pulled back and watered down language that was intended to 
provide promises of greater support for gig workers. The British economy has a very high level of employment, very low levels of unemployment. But this is done through essentially a large scale, very precarious, uh, relatively low wage labor market. And one of the dimensions of progressive politics should clearly be to provide better protections for those workers. It seems that for fear of antagonizing and enabling the Tories to run a powerful employer business-backed campaign against Labour as anti-business, the Labour Party is pulling back on that front as well, which you might think of being absolutely core. I think there are two hopes here, really, about Labour's policy. The first is that in government and on issues like green strategy, they will be much more progressive than they appear to be on paper. Um, In other words, they're a kind of sleeper Uh, administration uh, waiting uh, to come to power. And the second thing that you would hope the Labour Party would do, and this is, I think, why, again, people will vote for them, is that they are not an anti-public sector party, which the Tory party is. It is a party which is less likely to systematically undermine the National Health Service. It's a party that's much more likely to do better for poor poor families and, and poor kids. And so that, I think, is the stakes. But the scope for political debate has been so narrowed by obviously uh, more than a decade of Tory rule and the way in which through Brexit they essentially burned the boats and that that makes it very difficult for the Labour Party to to row back. So finally I guess if we leave the parties out of it I'm curious what you think Adam the strengths are that the United Kingdom has to build on going forward. I mean it seems to me like one strategy that Britain seems to be trying to pursue is to play up its military industry, you know, more generally its role as a military power. Yeah. Is that a plausible path to economic success or are there other sectors that Britain should be looking to instead? I mean, it's a pretty desperate last throw of the industrial policy dice. If you, if you, you know, have to rely on basically BAE systems and Rolls Royce, as your kind of vision of the British industrial future. So to clarify for, for listeners, Rolls-Royce we're talking about here is not the car company, which is long ago sold out, I think, to German owners. But the Rolls-Royce aerospace are the people who make the, if you look on the side of the airplanes that you fly around the world, you'll often see the Rolls-Royce emblem. And and so it's that line of of high-tech engineering and turbines that that is is really at stake here. Those are globally competitive, no longer in the absolutely big leagues. And they face, you know, they are going into the teeth of some of the fiercest industrial policy competition, you know, in, in the world. So, so those are gambles at a long, a long odds. There are strengths in the in the British economy. I mean, that's what sustains the affluence of the southeast England corner. That's what sustains the affluence of London. That London remains a huge hub for finance, for commodity trading. It's no longer the dominant force that it once was. You know, 15 years ago, you would have said it was running New York close. It's increasingly losing that position, both to US competitors, increasingly, I think, also to Europe in key areas. The business of banking is changing. The London stock market is, a, is in irrelevance today. But nevertheless, uh, that remains a, a, key, a key hub. The insurance market is, is globally relevant in London um, then as now. And then there's the education system, which despite the blows delivered to it by Brexit, remains a jewel in the crown of really not just British society, but also of economic policy as well. And the key area that matters here is is biotech. 
where the combination of a very powerful research base, what was once a powerful pharmaceutical industry with players like AstraZeneca, and then on the other hand, the highly centralized National Health Service, which provides you with a gigantic database and a huge field for various types of field testing of drugs, made for a very powerful combination. And even in the COVID epidemic, the systematic and important part of the UK's response to COVID was not the shambles made of COVID policy by the Johnson administration, but the ability to mobilize those resources uh, in molecular biology and the National Health Service to do very intensive and very rapid genetic sequencing. So Britain became disproportionately one of the countries in which we most rapidly tracked the variants of COVID as they emerged. That kind of role, I think, for Britain is, is really quite promising. The two problems with it are that it's highly concentrated in what are existing areas of affluence, and it's not going to be easy to move that talent and those resources to anywhere else in the UK. And the other problem is not so much the problems in the academic research sector, but in the industrial base, where Britain, which was 15 years ago, a global player in the pharmaceuticals industry, increasingly has slid, and slid into second and third place. Yeah, I suppose we'll see how things go in the year ahead, years ahead. But yeah, we do need to end the podcast here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.